Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me today. This is the Spicy Pecan Podcast. Have you ever had a dream that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Spicy Pecan Podcast. I hope everyone is keeping mentally, spiritually, and physically strong. I hope you are not watching the news all day. I'm going to be brief this episode and my talking portion um, just because I want to get directly to the interview. Very interesting about this interview. I've recorded this interview with Morris pre-George Floyd. Um, Wow, that's like really a thing now. Uh, Pre-George Floyd. And you know exactly what that means in so many ways. I want you to listen to the interview, understanding that and, uh, you know, keeping that in mind when you're listening. So many of these conversations we've been having anyway, but it just means so much more now. Um, So did anyone see the Dave Chappelle special 846? Me and Dave Chappelle are thinking the same things. If you listen to my last episode, I was definitely going in on Candace Owens and so did he. His lines about Candace, I died. (laughs) And I agree with you, Dave. I think she smells too. Um, Very good special. If you have not seen it, it is on YouTube for free. So definitely check that out. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but it's a it's a quick listen. It's about 30 minutes, maybe a little less. Um, Quick note. I will let you take this how you want to take it, but I'm going to just say it how I want to say it. Federal investigators are looking into two mysterious deaths thought to be possible suicides of black men. Two black men found 50 miles apart, both hung in trees. Some people have been active on social media saying that it's more than two. To me, one plus one has always equaled two. What do I mean by that? The Civil Rights Act of 1964, when it was passed, Bloody Sunday happened nine months later in 1965. Power is never given up easily. Look at the Queen of England. I mean, perfect example. Every time I think about power, I think of her for some reason. That chick has been holding on to that crown from her weird son for I don't know how long. And he just lurks in the window uh, behind the curtains waiting for his moment like a little peeping Tom. But seriously, retaliation is a certainty. Organized secret. Them boys is out, y'all. That's what I think anyway but we'll let the FBI do their due diligence. And I will remind you once again, if you haven't yet, just like I said in the previous show, think about practicing your Second Amendment right. You have the right to defend yourself from evil. Um, And it is what it is. It is, you have to protect yourself. One plus one equals two. So in regards to the interview, because we're gonna move along, um, I just want to apologize ahead of time. Zoom is a little clinky sometimes. Um, it, uh, you know, it kind of goes in and out. So I apologize for any technical difficulties. In lieu of a commercial, I want you to listen to Rihanna's acceptance speech at the NAACP awards earlier this will, uh, year. Now, Rihanna, that's a spicy pecan right there.
Okay, that is a spicy pecan right there. She lives by her own rules, says it like she means it, and she is always looking to grow and glow. She touches on the ending message of my last podcast. Everything that we're experiencing right now in terms of the systemic oppression that, you know, some of us are finally now getting or understanding a bit more, this all comes down to people who believe in the foundation of human rights and the people who do not. Those two groups of people have nothing to do with color. All right, let's check out Rihanna and we'll head right into the interview. Thank you, Derek. (laughs) Thank you, Derek, and thank you to the staff, board, and community of the NAACP, including all of you guys here in this room and everyone at home watching who's devoted their lives and efforts toward supporting people of color. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. Okay, I'm going to try to keep this simple because um, tonight is not really about me because the purpose is bigger than me, right? You know, it's not bigger than us together, but it's bigger than me because my part is a very small part of the work that's being done in this world and the work that is yet to be done. I'm lucky I was able to start the Clara Lionel Foundation in 2012. And if there's anything that I've learned is that we can only fix this world together. We, we can't do it divided. I cannot emphasize that enough. We can't let the desensitivity seep in. That if it's your problem, then it's not mine. It's a woman's problem. It's a black people problem. It's a poor people problem. I mean, how many of us in this room have colleagues and partners and friends from other races, sexes, religions? Show of hands. Well, then, you know, they want to break bread with you, right? They like you? Well, then, this is their problem, too. So when we're marching and protesting and posting about the Michael Brown Juniors and the Tatiana Jeffersons of the world, Tell your friends to pull up. Thank you to the NAACP for all of your efforts to ensure equality for our communities. Thank you for celebrating our strength and tenacity. We have been denied opportunities since the beginning of time and still we prevail. So I'm honored. Imagine what we could do together. Thank you for this honor. So, Morris, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Super, super lucky to have you. 
Um, I want to just start with, can you give us an overview of uh, your background? Yeah, first, thank you, Nina, for having me. Uh, really, really appreciate the opportunity. Um, for As far as my background goes, I was raised in Augusta, Georgia. I grew up in the church, but also in the community, helping out as well. I went to school at Spring Arbor University, where I studied health and exercise science with an emphasis on physical therapy. But I found a passion helping young adults move closer towards healthy lifestyles and spiritual formation and um, emotional well-being, and also in physical uh, attributes as well. After I became an RA, I was an RA for three years at my school, and I was really excited for the opportunity to be an RA for three years. I learned so much from the varieties of cultures moving from Georgia to the Midwest. After school, I ended up getting an opportunity to work at a therapeutic boarding school in Missouri, where it was very intensive mental health and severe drug abuse. And so I didn't necessarily was prepared for a lot of the things I would be set up for, but I'm very thankful that I've learned how to navigate those environments and how to help people move healthy along the way. After that, I moved to Iowa, where I was a hall director for Grandview University, and I worked predominantly first-generation of students um, buildings and campus as well. There, I obtained a Title IX certification and in investigating sexual assault cases, um, and also was opportunity to work in, and get my grad my grad work in, got my master's in organizational leadership. So my first year there. After my first year in grad school, I ended up resigning my job and going back into mental health, where I was a little bit more prepared to work with. Um, populations where they experience homelessness and drug abuse and severe mental health, things of that nature. And so I work for this company called Freedom for Youth Ministries. I operated a transition house and I had some staff and some residents there who I helped go more towards a healthy lifestyle. And finally, I moved from Iowa to California after my completion of my grad program. And I was really thankful to have the opportunity to become a resident director at UC Santa Barbara, where I completed several of my um, training programs for mental health and trauma. And I was leading on campus. I was helping leading with the team of Green Dot, which was bystander intervention training. And there I completed four certifications and trauma. And I was able to help a lot of students based upon all the things I've learned. Wow. <laughs> Very impressive. And I know the answer to this, but just so the audience knows the answer to this. Morris, how old are you? I'm only 28. I'm only 28. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> and so much of the work that you're doing is literally in the trenches, working directly with people. That is amazing. So the you, you came to write a book. Um, it's called Black Stoicism. What is the meaning behind that title? Yeah, so stoicism, as long as I've known the word stoicism, the meaning of it, the definition is defined as determination, grit, perseverance. Um, and for so, so long, it's been associated with white culture. Um, and so when I was doing more research about the word across my years of learning, I wanted to put black in front of stoicism because we as black people endure much more spiritual, emotional, 
physical pain on a regular ongoing basis without complaining. And additionally, I want to put black in front of stoicism because I think that we need to emphasize blackness more. Was there a, were there any specific experiences that prompted you to say, I have to do a book? Because there were so many different avenues that you could have potentially have gone. Um, what inspired the, the book to be written? I think a lot of it has to do with living in all these places in the Midwest, the South, the West Coast. Right. And people really not hearing me as a young Black man. You know, I have all these experiences. In addition, I've, I've taught in churches. I've led spiritual formation. I've given sermons. And I still felt invalidated by a lot of the people who are around me because they wasn't willing to take the time to listen, you know. And I had to learn, really learn over the years that my voice will always be invalidated until I find a different way to communicate to people. And I, I, I didn't want the, the next generation of young adults to come up and continue to feel invalidated. And so I want to write a, an honest book about my experiences to help them in a way that's very open and that kind of bridges all of us together as Black people. Uh, were there any specific experiences because you've worked face-to-face, hand-in-hand with people. Um, this isn't something where you're two steps removed or anything like that. You're right in the front line. Um, were there any specific experiences that you present in the book that you'd be able to share? Yeah, wow, yeah. Um, a very particular instance is, wow, yes, I like, I like that. A very particular question or uh, instance would be, really work, working in my experience in mental health. Um, there was always young black men um, who wasn't validated. And so for an example, there's a young man who moved from a different state to Iowa. And with the, with the transition house I was working with, he wasn't respected for his hard work ethics. Um, in the program, we have different stages in the program. And so usually stage one through three, Um, Typically, in the stage one of our program, the resident doesn't have a part-time job because we want to help build up. If they were homeless previously, we want to make sure they adjust to a more productive and sustainable lifestyle. But mainly, he just needed a a home to go to. He just needed somewhere to be safe and to grow and continue his, his growth in life. And so for him in particular, I kept trying to advocate for him to my supervisors and people in the environment. And unfortunately, they just wouldn't listen to me, but we had made exceptions for so many other white residents in the program. But for this black young man, we ha- I ended up having to tell him you couldn't stay in this program. And we had to end up finding him somewhere else to stay. Even though he was homeless, he fit all the criterias. And we had made so many exceptions to so many other of the students and residents. And in, for me, in that instant, it was a moment of my my particular voice wasn't heard for me advocating for his experience and my own as well. And it's just extremely frustrating and yeah, extremely frustrating. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what experiences, um, or I would say what inequities have you seen in your professional work? Um, I mean, you were basically just speaking to that. Um, how do you get around something like that? Because I would think that people aren't necessarily recognizing that 
I've made all of these allowances and tying that to race. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like sometimes people just don't see it, don't get it. How do you, um, how do you deal with that? Mm. Yeah, to me, it's, I, I, for me, I have to take it back to God. Um, I've learned over the years that for me, God has been such a strong foundation. And I've learned from all the elders who I've talked to who are older that throughout their life, they have gone back to God and they've been able to process their pain or been able to persist in their pain. And so I think that's number one. Um, and also there is this, when I worked in California, I used to go to these talks all the time. And there was this man who was wrongfully incarcerated and he spent 20 years in prison. Once he got out of prison, he ended up, ended up starting a barbershop. Uh, he was working three to four jobs and the government or the, the system ended up shutting it down. And then he worked more jobs to continue to his barbershop to help young men out. And he was speaking about this story and I'm listening and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing people not understand. You know, I'm just hearing them not understand what he's saying. And so I stood up almost in tears and I was saying, wow, these people will never understand what you just said. And he said something to me that was so powerful. He said, you know, don't hate them for not understanding. Your job is to make sure that whoever hears your message, you continue to preach that, you continue to instill values in them, you continue to work. And so for me, as I know that not a lot of people will ever understand. And so that that keeps me motivated. And my parents taught me from a young, young age to always keep your head up. And I didn't know what that really meant, you know. Right. I didn't fully understand that, but as I've progressed in the age and the experiences, I've learned that, okay, I understand the value of what you all are saying, that no matter what happens, they're not going to get it. Do you feel like it's your duty to um, continue to speak on that, even when you do realize that some people don't get it? Because I think a lot of us, um, not necessarily me, I think that there is a need for to continue to share a message. But I know a lot of people that look like us are like, you know, I'm sick of, I shouldn't have to educate. I shouldn't have to, all the evidence is there. All the evidence that you could possibly need is right there. Um, do you still feel the need to continue to educate where you can, how you can? Yeah, that's always been a tough question uh, for me. For me, I have because of the professions I've worked in in education and mental health. I knew that most people in mental health have a very European mindset of what mental health should be. It's all it's always from European. It's never from the Black African, the beauty of us. It's not from nature, right? It's not from natural healing. It always comes from something that's vague and not particular and always has to do with medicine, you know? Um, and also on the spiritual side as well, working in that area, most, a lot of pastors, they teach and preach from commentaries. And a lot of commentaries are based on the, the European perspective as well. It's not based upon the uh, cultural um, understanding of the entire world, or it's not based upon creation and what creation is supposed to teach us about life. And so for me, since I have worked in those environments of education, mental health, I have felt the need to do that. It is extremely exhausting, but I want to I want to be sure that people understand that as a young black man who is trying to be more of a Christian, 
it is important for me to teach you all until I can't teach you all anymore. And I'm thankful I'm not in those environments anymore because now I've built up a system where I can just put it in books. And now I can get the opportunity to speak about my experiences and have a lot more respect upon who I am and what I've said in the past. Yeah. Your your book goes over some huge life topics, mental health, physical health, emotional, spiritual. Um, in my journey, in my walk, I have come to, and I am much older than you, we're not going to say my age, but <laughs> in my walk, I have finally just come to uh, meditation. Heard about it a million times, um, you know, but becoming more serious about it now. Mm-hmm. How, in in your experience, um, where on one hand, doctors want to feed pills to people, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand, we have these boundless resources that are innately in us that we don't need nothing, you know, it's already there. Um, how do you kind of, you know, being in mental health, some people do need medication, but then we have that. How do you kind of play that line or, um, you know, how do you kind of uh, handle that line with people? Yeah, I've always approached it at a perspective of delayed gratification. It depends on what people want. Um, a lot of people, especially when they come into, because um, I've personally trained a lot of people, uh, but also had help people with their mental well-being. They want instant results, you know. And this generation that is growing up, they want that even more. Um, it's, it's been really a, a contrast to see over the past four years of working at the university in California. Just the difference. Of, Agreed. It is just, it's, I, my mind has just been blown away. It, it, I, I just don't understand what they're thinking about. I don't know how they're processing the world. Um, I, I'm not really sure what their goals or aspirations are anymore, but it is, it is so different than what I've ever seen before. And it's, it's scary. And so I, I've been trying to teach them, hey, it's really important to what you think is important right now that may not be important right now. And so let's focus on, delaying your gratification. Let's let's focus on expanding your attention span. Let's focus on those important tools. And then we can focus on, all right, is medicine an optional for you? Okay, well, what have you done besides taking meditation? Med- medication? Have you meditated? Have you been exercising? Have you tried walking? Have you tried journaling? Are you doing the recommendations of your therapist? Are you doing all those things and medication? Okay. What's the next step? Is there a way that we can wane you off of medication if you've had a conversation with your therapist? And so I think it just, it really has to come from a perspective of what are you willing to sacrifice in order for your, the betterment of your future long-term? And it's always a tough conversation with young adults because it's not common. You know, there's so many messages of you need to get this now or lose weight now or instant results now. And so it, it's, it's just really, it's hard, but I've always tried to approach it from delay what you believe is important right now. And just remember you're young, you are young. You don't have all the answers. So just, just be mindful. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think people need to also realize that regardless of age, you don't always have the answers. Um, but everything that you said, you know, absolutely true. So, um, One more question, just in terms of like your work history, working within the system, Mm -hmm. 
can be so infuriating because everything is a process. And I know that even though nonprofits may be a little more free, still there are so many processes. How do you stay encouraged when you're working within a bureaucratic system, you have to cross this T, dot these I's, but there's no room for the gray. Like what you were saying when you were trying to advocate for people and just those extra details because we're talking about humans. Yeah. How do you stay encouraged other than, you know, obviously prayer, um, but as you're working, how do you stay encouraged? I always remind myself that my elders before me never had the opportunities that I have today. Mm. Growing up in the South, I saw continual reminders of slavery in the South, you know, slave poles, um, the the continued separation, right, of of black and white, right, the how different schools were taught or giving information, um, how that in the South, different churches preach different things in terms of politics and religion and God, and so I was always reminded by my elders from hearing their stories from, you know, cause in the South, especially in churches, you, you listen, you know, it's right. a problem right. for young people to listen. You know, you can't really just voice your opinion. You just got to sit there until they're finished. And that may be, maybe an hour, you know, and maybe, you're maybe, maybe a lot longer. <laughs> Let's keep it real. That's real. That's real. I was being gifted there. <laughs> and so it's, it's reminding me that they've always said that, you know, like, you have so many more opportunities than we have and don't don't waste that you know and just my elders not being able to read or write that has always fueled my desire to keep learning it's always fueled that i never want to take advantage of that because they work so hard for me to be here and so as my elders did for me i want to do for them absolutely so i want to get into um the process of publishing the book You had decided to go the self-publishing route. Um, Was there ever a debate in your mind whether you were going to pitch it to a company or whether you were going to do self-publishing or did you just know? You know, I, I think for me, once I make a decision, you know, I just try to stick with it. I, I just, I had no idea how I was going to get the information out. And one of my friends, she had published a book a while back, self-published a book through a different company. And so I was exploring different options of self-publishing because I, especially with the topics I have, I just want to make sure it's my, I want to make sure the content is mine. I want to make sure that I send a very clear message because a lot of of the stuff in the book is sometimes can be challenging or hard to read my usage of language as well. And so for me, I just thought the best way was to try to see what I can doing my own and thankfully I found on the web searching book book baby ended up being a great resource for me and I was able to connect with them call and ask them some questions send a lot of emails and it's been great to hear that response but in terms of larger publishing companies I don't know I guess I'll have to see what what happens in the future but I just wanted to just try it out try something yeah. different Absolutely. Big things for you, regardless, regardless. Um, How long did it actually uh, take you to write the book? And then how long did it take to get it as a physical item, like in your hand? So it took about two and a half years to write the book. My goal was to write one page a day. 
um, and starting fall of 2017, all the way until to, uh, the end of 2019, just writing one page a day. Extremely emotional process, you know, because the book is, you know, it's meant to like pull you in every emotional way since I've learned about um, like the depth of emotions over the years. I want to just continue to take people on a journey of my life, but also the life of Blackness as well, Black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the publishing the book company, publishing with Book Baby, it was so smooth. It was such a smooth process. I started, I sent them information in early January and I, we kept doing some email back and forth. They helped me do editing, uh, which was perfect. I edited the book for a month, every day for a month. I take state, small stages. And so right. I did, you know, and so they helped me complete the final format of the editing. And I was really thankful for that. And they helped me design the cover as well. That took a few days because I wanted to make sure I get it right. I gave them as much detail as possible. And they ended up doing it perfect on the first try. So really thankful for that. And I think the last thing, it took three months, mainly because I wanted to make sure it was right. So I took a lot of time reading it. You know, doing something yourself, you just want to, you, you, it's this, it's like, it's so precious for you. You create right. it, you know? Um, and so... It, was, it took about three months, and I was really thankful when I finally got all the books sent to my door. Awesome. Now, what? Uh, where can we get your book now? Yes. And so the best way to learn about me and more content, but on my book now, if you go to Morris Jr. on Facebook or Instagram, there's a link in my bio. And also, I'm giving more information about who I am more poetry, more letters, more encouragement as well. There is on Morris Jr. Search Morris Jr. in the web and look for Morris Jr. Book Baby print version of it. I think the print version is a lot better than the ebook. The ebook's more for like personal use. You know, I'm, I'm just, it's like the rough draft of my life. So I, I right. just want to keep it as it is. Um, but the print version is available on Book Baby. And coming in July, It'll be available everywhere. Um, you can purchase on Amazon. But right now, just book it. I want to focus on just getting it out, getting the information out. I'm so excited for you. I think that anytime, because that is a huge leap of faith. You know, yeah. you're spending all this time writing a book. It's it's like giving your baby away to the public yeah. um, and hoping that they will handle it in the way that you're hoping yeah. they will handle it, you know? Yeah. So uh, congratulations. That is fantastic. Um, what do you have upcoming? What's, what's, you know, now we have the book. Um, are you going to be, um, like, how are you going to be promoting the book? Um, what's the plan moving, moving forward? Yeah. So as of right now, I don't have too much planned as far as this book, but what my plan is, I plan to release another book pretty soon, hopefully in the next three months. Wow. Um, Very different. Um, very different information, very different subject, very different title. And three months after that, I plan to release another book. And so the goal is for me for the next 15 to 20 years to continue to release books, different types of media and information and products for people to engage with my information until I have enough money to build my own event center. And so the goal is essentially to allow people to have different exposure from different audiences about who I am and about common perspectives LLC 
And essentially, I want to bring all of us together. And I think the only way to do that is just giving people different media outlets and being honest about all these experiences that I've had across the years and across the places I've lived and bring all of us back together because I really want that. I want all of us to be unified, but it has to come through a clear format. And so no, no really clear plans on advertising the book. That's not, I have, I'm not too concerned about that. I want my information to be out there, but I want other things to continue to to continue to have his have his weight as well. So I'm just trying to keep moving. Yeah, keep moving. absolutely. You know, your story is so encouraging on so many levels. There are so many people who are really, really afraid to walk in, you know, in their journey, to embrace their journey. It's so easy to get a regular job, come mm-hmm. home, you know, and just that yeah. cycle yeah. over yeah. and over. Before I wrap up with you, um, what does it feel like to actually know that you're living your purpose? Hmm. Wow. That, yeah. Because I can see it. I can yeah. clearly see it. I mean, 28 years old, you're not, you're, you're already past the first book. You're like, I'm not even thinking about the first book anymore. <laughs> I've got this. I, I want a development center. I want this. I want that. I wish I have these conversations with more people, but I just see them limiting themselves, Mm. you know, and so many of us have, we have these experiences to Mm. share. And I look at the smile on your face as you're talking about the work that you're doing. And I can clearly see that you're, you are walking, you know, you are walking in your path. Um, Yeah, man, what does it feel like? You know, it feels great now. It feels great now. But honestly, the past 10 years were extremely hard um, for a lot of reasons. And I I think, yeah, it, it, it was hard on so many emotional levels because a lot of people really don't take the time to learn or read about Black men. You know, there are so many... Um, stereotypes or stigmas associated with, with us. And we're seen as a threat in every environment that we go into. And that can be so damaging for a lot of us because we haven't had the opportunity to learn the emotional capability to heal, or not a lot of people have told us how to heal. And so I think for me, during those extremely challenging times, I had to remember women. I had to really remember Black women. I had to remember that Black women have been the, they have burdened the emotional labor for all of us, for all all of culture for so long. And that was my, a way for me to continue to say, you know what, if my mom can do this, you know, if she can raise a young Black man, if she can still work, if my father can work two and three jobs and be around and support us, Um, if my mom can have her off days, right, you know, like once a week, every month, right, and so, and still be supportive for me, then I should have no problem getting out of my bed to prepare for my future, and I think that's easier said than done, but it took awareness of my, really my mom, my mom showing me that how much Black women endure and keep going for our culture every single day, and so, and I know that women all across the world continue to feel invalidated 
And so I, and I know there's a privilege in being a man nonetheless. And so I wanted to, that was just my driving force. It, it, it was hard. It was hard. And a lot of my friends who are my age, they didn't, they never fully believed in me because I was speaking a whole different language. Right. That they don't even know, you know, uh, they're so interested in other trends and other parts of culture that to me is not as sustainable. Uh, I want to build things for all of us. And so, uh, so right now, right now it feels great, but wow, those past <laughs> years, I just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, it's hard testimony. to <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, we all are saying happy belated Mother's Day to your mom. Thank you. For thank encouraging you. you. Morris, thank you so much for this interview. I, this is definitely not the last time we are speaking. This is definitely not the last time we're speaking. I would love to have you back to the show. Um, I, I am so incredibly impressed. And um, I just, uh, you know, just encouraged encouraged through your testimony. So thank you so much for being on the show. I truly appreciate it. You, you know, uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You know, you said earlier in one of your uh, podcasts that, you know, pressure creates diamonds, right? And right. so I, I feel that now. I, I feel that the pressure has made me who I am. And so, again, thank you also for the wisdom that you get to provide to us I get to learn so much from listening to your podcast. Oh, about thank you. you know, it's, it's, really, it's really helpful for me. I, I have to learn so much. So I just still thank you again for teaching us and being willing to voice and give your voice to the world so we can hear from you as well. Oh, see? See, guys? This is why I love them. <laughs> Morris, thanks again. Truly appreciate your time today. Thank you, Nina. Fantastic interview. I'm very proud of that one. Morris, thank you so much for coming to the show. Now for my sales pitch. Hey, you like what I'm doing? Great. I want you to do me one good deed this week. Share my show with one person. We got to support Black-owned businesses, Black-owned loudmouths. Guys, thank you so much for listening this week. Um, make sure you're liking, subscribing, all that good stuff. Thank you to everyone who pulls up for human rights. It's an honor to have had your time. Stay safe. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to Spicy Pecan Podcast.